The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. In the United States, the average time between the conviction of a criminal who has been sentenced to death be executed for his crime and the actual playing out of that execution is 178 months, which is almost 15 years. That's on average. When we turn to the greatest execution, the most horrific execution in the history of mankind, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the entire trial, condemnation, and execution took less than nine hours. What I want to do is take you through those nine hours ever so briefly because the scripture gives us, just as a stone skips across water, these highlights in the last nine hours of our Lord's earthly life, and they are riveting. To see how fast the crowd that on Palm Sunday throughout the day on Monday and half the day on Tuesday was a group of people calling for Jesus to be the king, then turned on him under the influence of the religious leaders at the time, is a remarkable narrative. We pick up the story on Thursday night. Jesus has a final supper, Passover preparation with his disciples. After that, they dismiss and Judas exits earlier to go to betray the Lord. The 11 with Jesus go down the Mount of Olives or through the olive groves down into the Garden of Gethsemane, I should say, and they meet there. Jesus dismisses himself to go pray, and after that, the full betrayal of Jesus happens. Early in those hours on Thursday night, Monday, Friday morning, Jesus is betrayed, arrested, and forsaken. In fact, that arrest happens with some drama. The men come to arrest Jesus, and Matthew tells us that he rose and went toward them. That was to fulfill the scripture that he was not only ready, but had predicted exactly what was going to take place. Chain of events that began to unfold very fast after that went like this. Judas had arranged a signal to the men who were following him, the soldiers. No doubt these were some Roman mercenaries who had no knowledge of this miracle worker from Nazareth. They had come as hired hands by the Roman government. Judas was to let the men know who the one they were to arrest would be by a kiss. Judas actually is asked by the Lord, Judas, you would betray me with a kiss. Jesus is then arrested. The disciples make some feeble attempt to protect the Lord. Peter taking a swipe at a slave of the high priest named Malchus, taking off his right ear, immediately upon which the Lord picks the ear up and heals it on the spot. He then says, Don't make any mistakes. All of this is happening exactly as I knew it was and exactly as God had planned. 
It's still before dawn. Jesus is then taken and he's tried by the Jewish leadership. We enter into a series of trials that would take only a few hours very quickly and very illegally according to Jewish law. There were three parts, three stages as these trials unfolded before the Jews. It didn't happen spontaneously. This was a well-planned event. Judas had been in cahoots with them throughout the week to let them know what was going to happen on that Thursday night and early Friday morning. Sanhedrin, along with the Pharisees, had made elaborate preparation to make sure that this hated miracle worker and would-be Messiah from Galilee would be caught, tried, convicted, and executed. First part of these trials was Judas' fulfillment with being paid and turned over to the first part of this, which was the high priest, Annas. He examined Jesus found him guilty. Secondly, a hasty and formal trial began before Caiaphas, the current sitting high priest, Annas being the previous high priest. Jesus is condemned and mocked at that trial, buffeted. They actually put a bag over his head. Soldiers began to come by and punch him without him seeing who was hitting him and said, if you're the Messiah, prophesy and tell us who is the one punching you. Trial was illegal by Jewish standards. Jewish prudence said you could only try a man after dawn. Jesus said not one word during this trial. Sanhedrins kept trying to trick him. They were unable to get him caught in his own words because he remained silent. The best thing they could come up with was that he was going to destroy the temple. Finally, when asked under oath if he indeed claimed to be very God, the Messiah himself, Jesus actually affirmed that charge. This was then taken in an outraged mob that began to ensue as something worthy of death that Jesus would claim to be God. He was mocked again beaten again, buffeted again. Then he was taken to a dungeon to await dawn when they could actually take this pseudo-trial they had, they had concocted before daylight into daylight and fulfill the law lest the crowd were to ask questions of the Jewish leadership. After the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin had condemned Jesus, they waited with Jesus in the dungeon until dawn and then they officially retried him again, buffeted and mocked him a third time, slapping him in the face. Romans were taking turns, mocking him and slapping him and beating him. And as he was taken from that house, he passed his disciple and friend Peter, denying him for the third time. Then after dawn, he was formally condemned by the Sanhedrin, Matthew and Mark and Luke all record that. At the same time, the best we can piece together the narrative of Acts 1 and Matthew 27, Judas was riddled with guilt and went out and hung himself. Now it's shortly after dawn, and he's tried not only by the Jews, which had already happened three times now, he's turned over to the Romans. This was significant because the Jews didn't have the power of death and execution. So he shows up for the first time before Pilate. There's a series of times he would be bounced back and forth between the Roman officials. 
Shows up before Pilate. Jesus is asked a series of questions by this procurator, and he doesn't answer a word. He says nothing. Then he's taken to what is called the Hall of Judgment, which was inside up on Antonio's fortress. First, the Jews attempted to get Pilate to condemn the Lord with, without any trial. No charge was even leveled against him except that he needed to die. No case was put forth. Pilate would have none of that. John 18 gives this interplay between Jesus and Pilate that is stunning. The problem faced by these Jewish leaders was expressed in John 18.31 where they said we cannot put someone to death and they needed the Romans to do that for Jesus. At that point, Pilate takes Jesus alone back into the corner of the judgment hall and he questions him privately. During this conversation, Pilate is attempting at every turn to try to release Jesus. Even asking him at one point, don't you understand that I have the power to put you to death and I have the power to release you? Which Jesus responded, you would have no power unless God the Father had given it to you. Pilate's conclusion after interacting with the Lord in the judgment hall was to come back in front of the multitude of enraged Jewish leaders and a mob mentality and say in John 18, 38, I find no fault in him. By the way, he, he shows up before Pilate over the course of this morning five different times. And Pilate five times explicitly states that Jesus was innocent. The Jews didn't get what they wanted out of Pilate. He's bounced over to Herod Antipas, Tetrarch of Galilee, Pilate's boss. Jesus remains silent there in spite of the accusations that are hurled against him with the Jews. Herod doesn't know what to do with him, so he bounces him back to the lower court, which would have been Pilate. Pilate has him before him a second time in front of the crowd, and he surrenders to the demand finally of the Sanhedrin and says Jesus can be executed only after offering the crowd a choice, take a murderous man, Barabbas, and I can give him a pardon, or I can pardon Jesus. And I believe Pilate had every thought that they would say, well, there's no way we would exchange Jesus for Barabbas. But they did. Matthew gives us a really interesting insight. Pilate's wife had a dream. And the dream was to tell her husband, have nothing to do with this one called Jesus. Do not allow his execution. So Pilate tries to have it both ways. And he says to the Jews, you can now have the, my authority to execute him with my Roman officials, but my own punishment will be this. And he sends him out to be scourged. 39 times with the cat of nine tails. It's said that seven to ten blows with the cat of nine tails on a man's back would have ripped the flesh so deeply you could see internal organs and the kidneys would easily be exposed from hits on the back. He was hit 39 times. 
soldiers then took this humiliation further. They sent out and they found some thorny branches. They wove them together into a crown and then they buried those thorns into the head of the Lord, clothed him with a royal robe and marched him around as they mocked him as a would-be king. Pilate allows all this barbarity to happen and go on. Jesus keeps on enduring without uttering a word. Now we're Friday morning between 6 and 9. The Roman soldiers also mock Jesus. A very short time was given to the Romans to go out and create the cross, to take him those few hundred yards to the north and west of Jerusalem where he would be executed, where criminals were, were executed daily there. They've, the original language says they mocked him viciously as a condemned man. Now it's nine o'clock. Jesus has to walk to Golgotha, the place of the skull north of the city of Jerusalem. As he's walking there, he's so exhausted. He's had no sleep the night before, probably two nights with no sleep. Lots of blood loss. His eyes probably beaten to the point of being swollen shut. He's so beaten down at this point that as they gave him the cross beam of that execution cross, he can't even carry it. So debilitated that another had to be called to assist him in Matthew 27. Good question to ask at this point is where where are his men? Where are his disciples? And as Zechariah had promised, strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter. They had all run. We know that John had stuck around and shows up at the cross. Jesus actually charges John with the responsibility of caring for his mother. Tradition tells us that Peter was watching from afar. He's taken in along with two criminals. Laid on his back, which was already ripped. Nailed in his hands and his feet to that cross. The only details we have of that moment in history is that a sign was put above his head. The sign said, the king of the Jews. He'd been lifted up, the cross was dropped into a hole, and the Jews were furious that that sign was up there and wanted Pilate to take the sign down or at least say that he said he was the king of the Jews and he would have none of it, he left it there. Now for six hours, from about 9 a.m. until 3 in the afternoon, God in flesh hangs on a tree suffering a slow and torturous death. He said seven things on the cross. The first three were in the first three hours. 
Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You say, how can he say this about these people? You find out later in the narrative, some of these Romans after he died said, this must be the Son of God. Not long after that, he said to one of the thieves who was rebuking the other thief. An interesting play there. The, the text tells us that they began mocking him on the three crosses. The two began to mock Jesus. And after a while, the one began to rebuke the other and said, do you not know that this man is who he says he is? And he asked Jesus to remember him. And he says, the second thing from the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Not long after that, he looks at John and says to John, behold your mother. And he says to Mary, his mother, behold your son. At this time, at the foot of the cross, the Romans are are throwing dice. They're casting dice for Jesus' clothes, which gives us a, a horrific insight about this crucifixion. He was crucified, as were others, naked, to even accent the humiliation and shame. While he hung on the cross, Luke 23 tells us that they continued to rail on him, to mock him. And then something happened at noon. It was a frightening reality. It must have been terrifying. We find out that the sky went dark in Matthew. This was something like an eclipse. Noonday, and yet it goes to night. Then between noon and three in the afternoon, Jesus says four more things. He screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's looking in the depths of trinitarial communication that we can never unscramble. Then tormented, he says, I thirst. They offered him a narcotic, something to ease the pain. Sour wine and vinegar, he refused. Then he yelled out, which must have surprised them in his weakened state, Tetelestai. It is finished. And then the last thing he utters, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, Luke tells us. Then Luke simply says, and he breathed his last. The physical phenomenon at the time of the death of Jesus was really scary. It was already dark outside. He breathes his last breath, and a massive earthquake happens. Those who were in the temple noted immediately, and then they would for days come by and talk about the fact that a four-inch thick veil separating the Holy of Holies from the holy place was torn in two from top to bottom, Matthew tells us. And then 
part of the narrative that doesn't get much press in Matthew 27, verses 52 and 53, Matthew tells us that many bodies of the saints which were dead arose. It's dark. It's an earthquake. And people who you knew and had gone to their funeral walk around the corner. The effect of all this is remarkable. Let me read Matthew 27, 54. Now the centurion and those who were with him in keeping guard over Jesus, over the cross, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, there must have been other phenomenon happening we don't even have recorded, they became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Same men who were mocking him understood that this was a supernatural event. Now Jesus is dead. They wanted proof of his death, so some Roman soldiers came up to, to make sure that, that he was dead. They were going to do what they would typically do before uh, uh, on Friday, at least, or Thursday, Friday night of the week, they would, they would break the legs of uh, the prisoners and, to honor the Jews who didn't want anyone alive beyond sundown, which is when the Jewish Sabbath started. Also, it was out of convenience. They were, they, were, they were done with their day. It was time to clock out. So they would break the legs, and that way they couldn't lift themselves to aspirate, to breathe, and they would die very quickly. They came to Jesus to break his legs and in honor of what Jesus had predicted, quoting the Psalms, not a bone would be broken. He was already dead. And so to prove it, they put a pier- pierced his, his side with a sword, blood and water ran out. Then two courageous men, probably of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, came to identify Jesus' body, claim it for burial, took him, Matthew and Mark, excuse me, Mark and John tell us, to do just what Luke read earlier. They buried him with a rich man, a rich man's grave. <clears throat> a little background. The next day, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the Sadducees went to Pilate and demanded that Jesus' tomb be sealed, lest his disciples come by night, Matthew tells us, and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead so that the last error shall be worse then the first Pilate complied. He wanted to know more to do with this Jesus. So the theory was propagated that Jesus' body was stolen, which was rendered untenable, by the way, because the Romans had been there guarding it the whole time under Pilate's direct command. And there were women, two Marys, who kept watch at the tomb as well. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us. Luke's words are very insightful in Luke 23 when he says, and a man named Joseph who was a member of the council, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, this would have been brave, a good and righteous man. He had not consented to their plan and action. From Arimathea, a city of the Jews, was waiting for the kingdom of God, this man sent, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. 
He took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, laid him in a tomb, cut into the rock where no one had ever laid. Then Luke tells us, this is very interesting, it was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. That's how we know for certain this was Friday night. It was moments from the Sabbath beginning, which was Friday night. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed. They saw the tomb. How his body was laid, they affirmed he was there. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So they saw Jesus laid in the tomb. They saw the stone cover it. They saw the Romans come to guard it. They began to prepare spices for the embalmment, and they were going to come back on Sunday, the first day of the week, because they were honorable Jews and didn't want to work on the Sabbath. The time that Jesus' body lay in the in the tomb, the sepulcher, we're also told by Luke that the women maintain a vigil not far from that place. So was the death of Jesus Christ from Galilee and of Nazareth. Now I read all of that and covered that detail of those nine hours. We'll extend it up to three, probably a dozen or 15 hours. That was all the introduction for one verse. That was the what that happened. That's what we celebrate on a Friday that doesn't sound very good. If you want to know the full story of what makes it good, you need to come back Sunday. Peter gives us the theological interpretation of that. That's the what that happened. The why is answered by Peter, who says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust. So that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in The gospel is comprised of three realities, three dimensions, three parts. Facts, the facts of Jesus' death we just heard about. The theological interpretation of those facts, that's the meaning. And then the response to those facts, that's belief and, and repentance. This all begs the question, where are you in responding to those three dimensions of the gospel? Do you believe these facts? Historians tell us there's more objectifiable proof that Jesus Christ rose from the dead than there is that Washington crossed the Delaware. Do you believe the facts? The Romans certainly did. Caiaphas and Annas, who set the rumors out, certainly did. The disciples certainly did. He died and rose from the dead. <laughs> I just think of these, these friends 
of these people who rose from the dead after Jesus' crucifixion, what, what conversations those must have been. Do you believe the facts? Second, do you believe the theology behind those facts? That what was going on on that hill called Golgotha was way more than a, a man being executed with two other criminals. That God in that moment was making a substitution, was offering that if, if those by faith would receive his death instead of their own, he would grant them eternal life. He died for sins, Peter says, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. If you believe the facts, you affirm the theology behind those facts, the question is, what will you do with the Son of God? Can I give you a sneak preview? He doesn't stay in the grave. Soldiers... The women must have fallen asleep early on Sunday morning. And when they arose, he wasn't there. If you believe the facts, if you affirm the theology, the response is to repent, to turn from sins, not perfectly, but in progress, to, to say that Jesus is better than sin. To know that because he died for our sins and rose for our lives, that hope in heaven is better than anything we could experience on this earth. And to repent and to believe the gospel and to give your life to his lordship. That's the response. God knows us well. Jesus knows us very well. He knows how forgetful we are. So, in the Bible, he puts series of reminders all over the place in our way. When the Jews crossed the Jordan River, and when Israel crossed the Jordan River, he said, make a big stack of stones. Called an Ebenezer, raise the Ebenezer. And when anyone walks by that big stack of stones, they'll remember what God did to cross that. After the flood, he, he put a rainbow in the sky and said, remember what I did. And whenever you see the rainbow, I want you to remember that I, I promised never send another flood to drown the world. When he saved the Jews from bondage in Egypt, he put a meal together and he said, this is the Passover. Do this annually to remember that I am the Savior. In like manner... On Thursday night, when Jesus had that final dinner with his men, he, he substituted a new memorial that was to take the place of the old memorial, which is Passover. The greatest demonstration of salvation physically in the Old Testament was God saving the Jews from Egypt. And he, he transformed that meal into the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, what we call communion, and said, this will be a remembrance for you. This is something to remember. It's, it's a memorial. And as often as you do this, I want you to remember that I died for sins and that the new covenant, the new promise of my love for you is in my blood, in my substitutionary death for the sins of those who would believe. 
He said, I want you to do it often, and when you do it, remember me. Fascinating insight. He tells us to do it to remember him because he knew we would tend to forget. So we come tonight to communion, the Lord's table. If you're visiting with us, let me just explain what we're doing. If you're, uh, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, you're here tonight visiting with us, we're so glad you're here. Let me just tell you what this is. It's not a weird, spooky service. What we're going to do in a moment is pass around a little piece of bread. Everyone's going to hold that, and we're going to take it together. Afterwards, we're going to pass around a little cup of juice. Everyone's going to hold that, we're going to take it together. This is a remembrance ceremony. It's, it's a memorial to remember what Christ did for us on the cross because he told us to. But Paul adds to that when we're, when we're remembering that Jesus died for our sins, you cannot, we cannot do that with an unexamined life. The Puritans used to say you need to put a fence around the table, not literally, but by conscience. And what that means is if your life is unexamined and you have unrepentant sin on which you're leaning and for which you will not repent, let me just encourage you and beg you. No one will judge you. No one will think anything. We're just thinking about ourselves during this time. Just let that bread and cup pass you by. But don't be mistaken. This table is not for those who are perfect and sinless. It's for those who know we're not perfect and know we are sinful. It's to celebrate his death for our sins and to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for saving me, for giving me in grace what I could never achieve, for giving me in in mercy the suspension of judgment that I truly deserve. So if you don't know the Lord and you're just visiting with us, just you can watch tonight. We're glad you're here. Nothing weird. There's, it's, it's, it's a piece of pie crust and grape juice. It's a symbol that we're celebrating that Christ died for our sins. And if you're a believer and you have unresolved sin, and understand what I'm saying, not sin that you've fully repented of and will never do again. That's called heaven. The sin that you're just hanging on to and saying, I just want this sin. Please, for your sake, please, pass it by. This is the most holy thing the church does together because we're announcing to one another and we're announcing publicly to God, I am yours and I long to be holy. Not perfect. Just holy. I ask you to bow if you would. Man, if you could prepare to serve us the bread. When you get that bread in a minute, I want you to just hold it um, carefully and we'll all take it together. Megan's going to play for us a beautiful piece from Bach. And just keep your heads bowed. Draw a circle around yourself. This is a time of incredible reflection and worship before the Lord. Think about his sufferings that he assumed for you who believe and spend some time thanking him for that. Just meditate on that until you receive the bread.
Paul tells us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it in front of them. He took it and he ripped it apart. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Remember that he came in the flesh. God became a man. No less God, but fully man. And he became a man, Hebrews tells us, took on flesh and blood so that he could die for us. He said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember him together. They're going to pass the cup. And as they do, just spend some time praying and thanking the Lord for forgiven sin. It's impossible to outsend God's grace. That is good news. You can celebrate in your heart that those things that you're confessing are already paid for. Father, now as we take the cup representing the new covenant, the gospel in your blood, Give us grace to celebrate your mercy and your kindness toward us in the event of the cross and to worship you in thankfulness and in repentance because of Jesus. Amen.
If you know the lyric to this song, just say it with me. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Forgiveness is sweet. So kind of God to forgive us. Aren't you glad he doesn't expect perfection to go to heaven from us, but instead has accepted as the perfect sacrifice the perfection of Jesus as our righteousness and our standing in heaven? The same night, Paul tells us he took the cup. He says, this is the new covenant. That's a shorthand for the gospel. In my blood, that's his death. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. Let's remember him together. Put that cup in the seat ahead of you. Aaron, you can come up. And um, I think it's appropriate for us to dismiss our time together with an expression that should be obvious when we we sing this song, and I think if it's the right one I'm thinking about, it is the right one I'm thinking about. Let's stand together, and we'll be dismissed. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.